Welcome to Tea Talks Unfiltered, a podcast where we drink tea, we talk, and they're both unfiltered. My name is Jake, and I will be your host. And on today's episode, we're going to be drinking a very mellow poor tea, and we're going to be discussing art. So, welcome back, everyone, to another episode. Today, the subject is all about art, its importance, its significance, how I personally perceive it. Uh, and potentially define it, but I think that's more of a loose framework, uh, a potential concept that we can use. You know, I think that art is something that is reflected in everything that we do. It's a language. It's uh, something that we gravitate towards, this ability to express ourselves through some medium. And that medium can differ from person to person. It could be martial arts, it could be painting or calligraphy, but it could even be sports or your career or just the way you carry yourself in life, you know, the way that you interact and engage and connect with other people. I think that that can be done in an artful way as well. So that's what I want to share with you today, what that means to me, how I kind of look at art in general and how I find it. And how I incorporate that into my life. I think that these are really important ideas that we we should share, right? Because that is the essence of art, is having an audience. So I hope today's episode inspires you to do the thing that you love. But first, let's have some tea. Cheers. All right. So I think everyone listening to these detox, you know, you understand the importance of art in our lives. Uh, you might be a martial artist, but you're probably involved with some aspect of self-cultivation, right? You know, in fact, the the earth without art is just, eh. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just okay. You know, I think that that's a funny little phrase. Um, it works when you when you when you read it <laughs> better. But this idea of, you know, this kind of being the, the building blocks of, of civilization in some ways of, of the way that we interact and everything, I think that that's really important to understand about art, you know, because it is kind of this, this driving force. It's this, this color that adds depth to everything, right? It's kind of the purpose in some way, right? I think that for me, art is definitely one of these main pillars I would say of, of life, you know, of being like a, a complete person, you know, and I've read about this in a, in a few different places, kind of speaking about how to, how to become an adept or how to become an enlightened sage or what have you. But I think it's much more general than that. I think that this is something that can be just applied at any level. If there's a level or a ranking of, of, of kind of your, your life destination, but I think that these pillars are really important. You know, we have to have uh, something for health cultivation, something for the body. You know, this this is what builds us into these internal practices of of finding balance within ourselves physically. You know, we have to have some kind of study uh, of classical texts or philosophy or theory or something that engages the mind. Some kind of you know academic uh, practice. I think that this is what develops into philosophy, into etiquette, into this kind of compassion that we're trying to grow. Uh, it becomes kind of this character building and, and morality um, 
exercise. I think that that's also really important. You know, that's we have something for health, we have something for the body, we have something for the mind as well. And then we have something for the cultivation of our spirit, you know, that which embodies the body and drives the mind. You know, I think that this is the most pure expression of ourselves. When we can approach art in an honest and potentially a little bit of a vulnerable way, you know, that becomes art because people recognize the truth. You know, they recognize that purity. You know, I think that that is really, really important. And it, it, it usually transcends language, you know, like spoken and written language. It's something that can be experienced, right? And I think that that's kind of the maybe goal, maybe not the goal of art, but it's definitely a side result, right? It's a side effect of art is having that expression that can carry over to someone else and potentially they can understand that same thing in a moment that you did. But I think some of the best art can understand more than you meant to express. And so we'll, we'll get to that as well. But let's start off. Let's actually go through these, these different pillars because I think that this is a good way to understand art because a lot of times we, we tend to externalize these concepts and apply art to something that is beyond our own understanding or beyond our own skill level. And I think that that's, that's kind of a disservice to ourselves where, you know, there's always like, oh, there's artists and there's workers or there's, you know, these kind of segmentations in, in civilization and in society. And I think that that's really just a negative impact on us because art is something that doesn't have to have a skill level, right? Recently with my daughter, actually just today, we were, we were like drawing pictures and she has her sketchbook and everything. And I had these interactions with her growing up and being who I am and doing the things I do. Uh, I think there's, there's this constant kind of uh, aspect of my training that involves teaching and involves sharing and involves kind of instruction or guidance, hopefully. And with my daughter kind of being around for that entire thing, especially the last two years with everything being close to home, we had this conversation a little while back of her practicing music or practicing art, or practicing dance. And it became this thing where she said, oh, she wants to get really good so that someday she can make videos online and teach people. And I had to take a moment and, and explain to her that your art, your practice, your hobby, your, your passion doesn't have to be a professional aspect of your life, right? For me, I'm lucky it works out this way and I enjoy the, the teaching process. Like I think that there's a lot to be gained here, not just for a student, not that I have that much to offer, but I think I'm learning just as much through the, these experiences. So for me, there's, there's a very engaging part of that aspect, but it doesn't have to be the standard right? Art is something that cannot be, you know, quantified into this perfect uh, kind of formula, right? I think that, that that's kind of a disservice to ourselves where we're, we're kind of separating ourselves from saying, oh, I need to be good at this so I can be the best at this, right? And art doesn't necessarily have to be the best, right? It has to be the most useful in the most appropriate time. And hopefully that is able to be shared with others, you know, so they can kind of live in a moment of that light. But it's not something that we have to be the best in the world, right? 
that is not art that is a job you know that is work which art can be at times but i think that you know that was an interesting moment for me with my daughter kind of explaining that you know if you love doing this you can do it and not have to be you know the greatest at it you can still love your practice i think that that's kind of the starting point for everything you know we have to understand that you can have art in everything you do and you can be at any level and it can be perfect right so perfect and imperfections you know the absence of flaw is flaw itself uh, that's an old throwback <laughs> So, but yeah, let's go through, let's go through these pillars and kind of explain this because I think that while we may understand, okay, we can all do some kind of art, we can all have a hobby, we can all do something. I think that even to take it, take it a step farther and say that there's art in everything we do already. So starting with the first, starting with art in martial arts. Okay. We use this as the example for the physical practice. Okay. Because I think that this is a is a really good reference point. You know, we have art in the name. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, but this is kind of the the connection that we're making with these with these practices with these traditions, because the the martial aspect is just as equal as the art aspect. I think it's even more so in 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 the way we train in today's world, right? Because the martial aspect of it is becoming less and less impactful. Um, due to just you know the quality of life increasing, the 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 rules of engagement changing quite a bit, uh, to where some things you can say are outdated, um, but also they're just not in the right reference point. You know when you're looking at it as like a traditional martial arts Chinese kung fu standard, there's lots of things that just aren't done that way anymore, or they've already evolved past that point. And so I think that there's there's kind of a, a conversation to be had right off the bat with martial arts. Uh, is it more martial? Is it more art? And generally, I would say it's leaning more towards the art aspect of it. But I think that there's a really important thing we have to explain here is that just because something develops more into the artful side doesn't mean that the the the, the martial aspect in this case is not still uh, prevalent, right? And so I think that that's kind of something we recognize when we look at art as in painting. We understand that this painting, uh, maybe it, maybe now there's so many people who paint at a higher level than this classical piece. But it was this classical piece that spawned that entire genre. You know, it was this this building block that began that. And and you know, it's not it's not the best. It's the most appropriate at the right time, right? And so things like the Mona Lisa are the most famous pieces in the world, but they don't become the standard. You know, if that was the best piece of art, then every student would just learn how to draw the Mona Lisa and that would be it, right? And that would be like, okay, now you've done art, you've win, you win, you know? But that's not how we approach art, right? We approach it as kind of a process, a cultivation, a system of, of thought and challenge, to improve upon, but it doesn't take any value away from that which came before. And so I think even with martial arts, we have this idea of things becoming outdated, but I think that there's so much still to be learned from those practices because they are the building blocks that brought you to another point, right? And kind of un un uncovering all those layers and rediscovering movement and being able to kind of how would you say mimic and change and adapt, adapt 
to different ways is kind of the essence of some of these traditional styles is, is being able to understand not just the body mechanics, but being able to change the way you move to be able to mimic certain animals. For example, I think that all that has a lot of valuable, a lot of value because it's teaching you to be adaptable, right? Nowadays, the art has kind of taken the, the front lines because the conversation is now more about preservation and culture. And so the idea of martial arts has changed quite a bit. Also, it's adapted quite a bit to be uh, a competitive sport. And so that changes the entire conversation. Uh, I've already talked about this a little bit more in detail, so I won't go too far. We talked about this uh, before in the traditional versus modern uh, martial arts episode. But I think that the thing that I'm trying to express right now is that with martial arts in particular and with many of the combat arts, for example, what we're doing is we're expressing that this movement is still alive, right? That's kind of the idea with art is that it lives on. It's not something that's cut, framed, and just stable. You know, it's something that continues to inspire more. Uh, aspects of training. In this case with martial arts, you have something that has so many pieces of movement, so many um, kind of emulations of different styles and different adaptations that you're bound to have different connections being made along the way. I think that's one of the biggest values of Wudong. I've always said that Wudong is kind of like the middle, the middle road and everyone can benefit from it. And I still stand by that that's something I said really early in my training, but I, I still stand really by that because being here and observing people training over the years and coming from all over the world, uh, all different histories and experience levels and seeing them train here, I do notice a lot of similar themes that I think still that everyone who comes here can can benefit in some way, right? Because there is no extreme point, Right? Whereas if you have a certain style, a certain tendency, a certain constitution, or you know just something that you prefer even, I think that adding the, the Wudang system to your training is only beneficial because it is a balanced place, right? It's the middle road. And so it can be challenging for everybody, of course, but it's something that when you learn the system and you take it back to combine with potentially your other styles or your other practices, even not martial arts, I think that there's, 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 there's benefit to be gained. And so, you know, I just think that the Wudang system is more about principle rather than specific technique. You know, it's, it's an entire process, right? We have a very comprehensive uh, program uh, from the external to the internal side, uh, weapons, empty hand. At the end of this kind of training, going through all these different practices, you start to look at things differently. You start to understand things a little bit differently because you see connections, you see similarities. You understand the road it takes to get to a certain point uh, with physical training in general. And so I think that that ability to adapt and not just be kind of focused narrowly on one subject, you know, you want to be the best puncher, so you just learn how to punch. You want to be the best kicker, etc. I think that there's something to be gained from having this ability uh, to have a broad horizon, to be able to see many skills and many uh, patterns, right? I think there's a lot of connections to be made there. And, and so I think that 
that that's really important to understand at the first base level right is that the art of a martial art for example is alive you know it's adapting it's changing you know and it's being interpreted and perceived different ways and that's creating a new conversation with every generation you know that that's a that's a that's a pretty valuable aspect to where you don't get locked into the mode of thinking this is the best way to punch or this is the best way to move and you only do that and you neglect the fact that you know the teacher you have might have a different body style than you you know they might have a different uh, dynamic power range uh, a different weight class all these things come into play and this is definitely something that is not new information you know like this is is very much part of the the competitive sport arena too like playing to these advantages of each individual person but i just think that the wudang system has a very good middle ground to benefit from generally you know even even as a teacher i think that these forms are adapting i personally do not completely believe that we're practicing the exact same system that was alive 100 years ago you know even 50 years ago i think that these things adapt even from teacher to teacher within the same lineage you can see slight variations just in the way that you perceive a movement the way that you understand coordination maybe even the challenges that you personally have had in training have influenced the way that you've perceived things and it's not to say that they're wrong it's just to say that they're different and i think that there's there's value in each one you know i've had movements where i've understood it as this technique and and been seen it's a different way you know and and then and then you also notice the connection on how the transition can actually be utilized in different ways and so i think that that's that's really valuable to be able to you know once again adapt and change and and see more similarities than differences you know i think the one of the one of the great quotes of a musician dave grohl uh, was you can sing a song to an arena full of 10,000 people and 10,000 people will sing those same lyrics back to you for 10,000 different reasons and i think that's a really beautiful thing because that's that acknowledgement of the fact that you might have a creation or a system or a medium of some kind that you've shared or you've translated or transmitted to others and people are going to hear those words they're going to do those movements they're going to learn that system and then they're going to create new things out of it and i think that this is where we start getting into art you know these, these kind of things that we can't completely express everything that it means. Uh, a song is a good example. You know, lyrics are a good example. But I think even physical movement is a great example because we're noticing so many different pieces of our training. You know, the challenges, the, the benefits, the, the, the difficulties, the weaknesses, the strengths recognizing all that and creating something out of it you know that becomes your perception again it's also important to open that perception and i think that's why i like this quote it stuck with me for so many years because this is you know dave Grohl coming out and like acknowledging the fact that you know the music is almost 
almost separate from him. You know, he's created it, but it's living its own life. You know, I think that with with forms, with movements, with with these kind of systems of thought and, and practice, I think that's kind of similar. You know, we've created a principle, we've created a, a training practice, but not everyone practices it for the same reasons, and not everyone's going to get the same results. You know, and hopefully they're all positive and inspire growth, but they're going to be different. And I think that that's really wonderful, right? One of the maybe more 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 focused on principle ideas of art in movement would be the concept of wu wei or effortless action uh, completely we would say wei wu wei so action without action uh, non-action effortless action i think is probably the best translation so with effortless action um, this may be something that we go into further detail in the future but um, to basically explain explain it this is this is basically just when you have one of two things. Maybe the easiest representation of it is when people talk about beginner's luck or getting into a flow state. Okay, these are probably the most general terms that you can use to kind of understand it at a brief glance. Uh, but it's really that that idea of cultivating and and honing a practice long enough that the reaction that is instilled from that training becomes natural and effortless. You know, it's kind of like muscle memory. It's kind of like training something so hard to where at a certain point you don't think about it anymore. You know, there's the great there's the great story about the um, the archer, the famous archer in China. Uh, I don't remember his name because there's actually a legend uh, dedicated to this, but it becomes this uh, this this myth of this the greatest archer in the world and he's known for his ability to to shoot any target at any moment uh, at any distance and he goes so long at, at being the greatest and being known as this that eventually he he stops he stops uh, archery and then one day he's walking through a village and someone approaches him recognizes him and shows him a bow and says you're the greatest bowman of all of all time he says can you can you can you teach me something and he looks at the bow and he he's forgotten what the bow is like he doesn't he doesn't recognize it anymore because you know he's just done it so much and he picks it up effortlessly pulls the bow and shoots something without looking perfectly perfectly hits bullseye and and there's there's more to the story but i just like that idea of, of being able to to train something so much to where you know it 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 just it's like a lost friend it's like something that you didn't even realize you didn't have but then you still have it and it's just this perfect effortless thing um, that connects every time and so that that's maybe kind of the art of movement is we're trying to get to this certain point to where our reaction becomes just simple unordained and effortless and appropriate and perfect and I think that there's, there are, regardless of whether or not you're at the high level of being able to forget what a bow looks like, um, regardless of that, I think that at any level you can recognize effortless action. You know, you can see people practicing, uh, for example, Taiji or, or, or some system of, of the soft styles, I think. And you see someone practicing this and you can see the, the connection that they're making. And there is kind of this, not attraction, but this kind of like 
very, very strong interest, like this kind of pull into the form where I think that the, the way we categorized it here, uh, teaching students was you want to perform at an ability to where if there's someone watching, they're involved in the movement too. You know, it's like, like as a, as a teacher, when you find yourself watching a student and kind of moving with the movements that they're doing, that's a very proud moment because it, it's like you're, you're becoming involved in their practice, you know, because they're really involved in it personally, you know, and you can see the focus and the concentration and you're kind of like, you become part of the movement, you know, for a moment there, you're like, cause you know, what's coming next. You're kind of following along. And for me as a teacher, I think that's a really cool moment because it really shows that the, the student is finding the feeling, you know, and as they're finding the feeling, you're, you're kind of in the journey too, you know, because you're, you're, you're checking all those moments. And that's a really nice, uh, kind of event. So I think this effortless action, that is the art of action. Okay. Then moving over into, uh, this kind of art in, in our mindfulness. I think that the same kind of ideas apply the same kind of ideas for the body. This, this kind of, uh, becoming effortless, becoming a natural extension of ourselves is also the the goal, the kind of the kind of direction that we're moving towards on this journey. And I think that that's done through study, you know, and this doesn't have to be uh, specifically about the cultural religious texts and things like this. But I think that there is kind of a strong precedent for that uh, throughout history, throughout different cultures, through different places. I think that, you know, this this idea of education through etiquette, ritual, right, philosophy, you know, academic study. I think that all of this is very important because it's training you to question and to challenge your thoughts and to open your mind and to, you know, perceive things with compassion from another point of view even. And I think that that that's an important practice that we need to always engage ourselves in. And so for us personally, what that means is the study of classical texts, you know, that involves the study of philosophy, this kind of building towards some golden standard. And I think that that is the, the connection that we're looking for, right? We're trying to follow this guidance of ritual, of, of, of etiquette, of, you know, the system of relationships and then bring in the academic study of philosophy and theory um, and just kind of worldly knowledge so that we can always be questioning our judgment and improving upon it, right? I think that there is a lot of, how would you say, there are a lot, of, there's a lot of pieces of knowledge that stick with you for a long period of time. And something that can always come back might be the smallest thing, but it could be a very long learning process. So what I mean by this is I think that we all have words in our mind that stick with us. For example, someone may some say something to you at a random point in your life and you have for some reason diligently dedicated that phrase or those few words to your memory 
and they're burned in and they come back to you at the most random times. You know, I have I have pieces of advice, I have insults, I have I have all these different things of pieces of information from other people, from connections that I've had with people that kind of come back, you know, they remind you. You're, you're, you, you remind yourself of that so often that it becomes almost like a driving force. It becomes like a, like, a, like a check or some kind of motivation even sometimes. And I think that we all, we all probably have a reference point in our head of, of something that comes up that you never tried to remember, but it just stuck with you over the years. And I think that these words, they, they, they stay with you. They last a very long time and they end up defining aspects of ourselves because we're reacting to that memory over and over and over again. And this is kind of a small idea of what is happening when, when we talk about, you know, this study, when we talk about kind of drilling in this ritual, drilling in this etiquette, this philosophy, this education, this, this, uh, this knowledge building, is that we're trying to build those same pathways. It never happens as naturally and as easily as it does for, you know, when someone nonchalantly says, that color looks nice on you. You know, then every time you wear a jacket with that color, you think, oh, this looks nice to me because that one random person said it 15 years ago. And, and it's just one of those things that, that sticks with you, negative or, or good. You know, there could be positive reinforcement, there could be negative reinforcement. I know that I have, I have you know, the, the constant voice in the back of my head of, of uh, not kind of crunching up my, my forehead and, and kind of like staring strong as I'm doing Taiji because it's kind of this constant uh, thing that everyone does. When you start practicing, you get serious face and you start to, you know, clench your, squeeze your eyebrows together and, and wrinkle the face and you create a lot of pressure that's unnecessary. Like you're just standing, moving around. But when people meditate, when people do Qigong, when people do Taiji, it's very common for people to kind of over, over uh, concentrate. And so there, there ends up being this pressure buildup. And every time I notice myself doing it, I hear Sifu's voice, like, tell me not, you know, smile when you do Tai Chi, things like this. And there's always these very simple things that happen, you know, that constantly remind you and challenge you. And so I think that this monkey mind, this ability of our mind to just pull up every small memory, every small detail, and continually kind of bring it up and ponder it and reinforce it, you know, creates a reaction you know, and that's something that can come to define us. One of my, one of my biggest examples that I still think about is, uh, my, my old roommate here at the school, uh, told me that for me personally, I do not respond well to positive reinforcement. And he said, not to be mean, he said, it's not that people can't tell you good things. It's that you only respond and take action when people tell you that you can't do something. You know, it's, it's when someone tells you you're good at something, you have no motivation to do it. But when someone tells you that you're not good at something, then you're going to go out there and spend every day trying to prove them wrong. And I still think about that conversation quite often to this day. And it is kind of a, 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 a humbling aspect of myself that to remember, to remember that, 
you know, I'm pushing myself extra hard because someone said I couldn't do this. You know, sometimes I need to pull back and sometimes I need to be aware of that and be like, oh, I'm going crazy right now because I'm trying to prove something, but I don't need to. Other times, you know, it's a, it's a good kind of motivation to keep me going. And so it's, it, there's kind of this weird dynamic to where even that knowledge can be applied different ways. And so I think, you know, this art, this finding that balance, this, this connection to, you know, our, not always the analytical aspect of our mind, but just the attention that we get from the mind, those signals, those reactions, being aware of that and being able to apply that, I think is very, very important. You know, our words create actions. So I think it's really important that we're mindful of our words. You know, of course, we have connections to what others have said, but I think even more so it's brought my attention to what I say. You know, I had I have a few interactions with people that this has happened before. Um, I, I once had someone uh, quit smoking because the last thing I said to them was you smell like cigarettes. And it wasn't ever something that I thought about, but it ended up being something that that helped them get over a habit, you know. And that was one of the moments where I realized, you know, the power of words, the power of naming things, the power of, of this uh, connection that you might not even know happens. You know, uh, I, I, I started from a pretty young age always having uh, not a censorship, but definitely a stronger awareness on my words where there were banned words in my house. You know, of course, as a kid growing up, you're not supposed to have any uh, dirty language or, or foul mouth or no bad, bad words, of course, no cursing. But it got to the point to where, you know, I couldn't say like freaking. Uh, so because in in as a kid, I would always say like, this is freaking stupid. Even now, I feel weird saying that now because I haven't said that in so long. And it's not a curse word, but I was always taught by my mom that that is a substitution for a curse word. And it means the same thing. And so I would get in trouble still just for that because it wasn't the word right? It wasn't the word that's actually bad. It was the connotation. It was the implied uh, connotation with that. And so from a pretty young age, I, I had a, a pretty close connection to my vocabulary and, and the way I spoke to people. And I think that, you know, that's definitely important, like that awareness to kind of how you're in, interacting with everyone is really important because, you don't understand the power of words at a young age, right? And words are just words. They're just, it's just a language. It's just something that's been created for me to express what I'm think, what I'm thinking and feeling to you and something that you can communicate through. It's more the, the implied definition that, that carries along with that language. You know, and so this is this is the big this is the big toying cost between, you know, if you if you connect negativity to those words or if they just become words, right? And then there's that's the entire conversation, right? And that's the art of language. You know, that's you know distinct from culture to culture, from from house to house, from person to person. Um, but I think for me personally, I can say that you know I I, I spent all of my <laughs> adolescent life censoring. Uh, like foul language, especially to my elders. But also, I, I, I was also supposed to censor myself from saying the word I hate because hate was always something that was reserved for 
you know, an absolute. It was it was such a pure form of, of of, you know, the antithesis of love. It was just such an opposite, strong force that it you couldn't just use that word. It didn't mean anything, right? And so I always would say I very strongly dislike, <laughs> but I reserve the word hate um, because that carries a very big weight with it. And so even that became kind of a, a bad word growing up. Um, and I, I look back and I, I think that that was a really positive thing. And I, I try to instill things like that in Selena and my daughter, because I think that paying attention to the way you speak, paying attention to the, the connections and the thoughts that you're having, without that awareness, you're going to fall into actions that you did not prepare for, that you did not imply you didn't you didn't want to happen you know you will stumble into them even even today i i spend a lot more time censoring uh, especially since selena was born uh, there's a lot even more of unnecessary language that i started to kind of pull out of my own vocabulary one of those things is uh, when i when i went back home i started realizing in the states how many people i know that are religious uh, are Christian or Catholic or something, and Jehovah's Witness Mormons even. And I just, I realized my tendency to say things like, oh my God, or or, or things like that, and, and take the Lord's name in vain, not even being religious in that sense for me, I started to think about just how often I use things like that. And I started pulling myself back and saying old-fashioned things like, oh my gosh, and and even trying to pull away from that because again it's just a substitution and that that kind of translated over to selena now she's using all the words like gosh and and geez and oh neat and all this stuff and it's really cute but it, it for me it was always that thing of trying to trying to pull back from any kind of language that would be perceived in the wrong light potentially i think that i hope i'm doing a good job but there is kind of that constant struggle of finding new connections and and uh, how that how that kind of phrasing starts to live inside you, you know. Uh, I've, I've tried to speak a lot less in absolute terms and saying things like always, uh, kind of having these moments that are completely defined by one ideal, you know, trying to leave room for growth, leave room for con contradicting ideas, I think that that's really important to just be open to. So I've tried to remove absolutes from the way I speak. Not in these kind of talks because I'm talking about my own perception quite a lot. But I, I also try to get word of the word I quite often if I'm having a conversation uh, with my family uh, or students. I try not to say the word I as often. <laughs> right now I can't avoid it because this is the, the format that I'm using to, to kind of communicate my personal feelings my kind of perspective but I, I i try to get away from that in like a normal conversation i also try to 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 stop saying things like uh, taking time i try to say giving time i've always felt this negative connotation with you know something takes time it requires time to do it and i try to kind of reinforce the idea of saying this i have to give time to this practice that's a small one but for me that's really big because I've, I've always kind of organized things in my life and said, 
well, I'm going to do this and it's going to take me this long and then I can do that. And, and it always kind of felt like a duty, like a job, like a responsibility. And sometimes that analytical approach of mine took the joy out of a practice. And so I started trying to approach my things as, you know, time is not something you take. Time is something you give, you know, like charity. And so in this sense, it feels a lot more positive when I say like, you know, I give an hour of my time to my music practice or something like that. You know, I think that that seems more like a beneficial turn of phrase, right? I also have instilled the idea of the word can't is a bad word. You know, I try to even tell my students here this, even today I told some students this, you know, this, this idea when you're, when you're doing something that you love and you're doing something that you're practicing, you're improving yourself in some way, the word can't, can't be used, (laughs) you know except for there. It's just something that it, it restricts you. You know, it, it's these words that become absolutes in some sense. And we have to pull those out of our language because the dependency on them eventually becomes a mindset. You know, it becomes a belief, you know, like, oh, I can't do that movement or I can't do this or I can't draw that good or whatever it is. The only way that can be fixed is if you put a yet at the end of the sentence you know i can't do that yet you know I, I i would rather like people to say like i am working on doing that or i will do that because it's so much more positive reinforcement than just kind of separating and detaching yourself by saying i can't you know i had a sign on my on my on my wall uh for quite a few years as a constant memory of just saying it's not that you can't it's that you won't and i think that that was kind of the start of my language development was you know i really need to pull that phrase out of my language because just the the constant repetition of it was draining energy you know it was i can't do this i can't do that if i do this i can't do that And then at the end of the day, it just feels like you actually can't do anything. And so trying to change that into, it's not that I can't, it's that I won't. It's that I'm not pushing myself to do that. You know, I'm not motivating myself. I'm not inspiring myself. And so that, that, that became a pretty big thing. And I think that the art of the mind is this idea of finding a way to reinforce positive connections again that can be done many many different ways but hopefully that inspires some thought then we come to the last pillar uh, talking about you know art for art's sake you know art for the spirit and this is where we get to those kind of typical ideas of art you know what we really think about um you know, we think about music, we think about calligraphy, painting, drawing, we think about authorship, writing books, creating movies and media, you know, comedy, woodwork, architecture, sculpting, you know, we think of these kind of like tangible uh, kind of labors, right? And I think that that is definitely <laughs> the focus of art, that is kind of the the pure embodiment there's definitely 
way too much to talk about there that I could fit into one tea talk. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, each one of these is valuable and, and can have a lot of purpose. You know, you can find everything you need in any one of those and more, you know. A quick moment here before we move on, just to talk about my personal expression of art, is um, the channel Wudao Music. Uh, so if you know that channel, that's where I have all of my Xiaomi playing right now, um, the bamboo flute here behind me if you're on the video version. Um, and on that channel, on, on YouTube, uh, Wudao Music is all about me kind of finding my finding my way uh, through expression of, of music through the bamboo flute and hopefully more instruments in the future. Of course, I, I, I play a few other things, um, but right now that channel is mainly dedicated to music instruction and songs and notation. And for me, that is like, that's the way that I really get in touch with that deeper aspect of myself. Not that it's some very, very high level, but there's just this piece, there's a challenge, there's a there's an improvement, there's some growth. There's kind of a full system of my identity, kind of macro scale inside music. And for me, the Wudao channel is a way for me to share aspects of that, to hopefully inspire other people to find their own music. So um, if you're not checking out Wudao music, please do. Um, Go subscribe, click the bell, because that you know that does help me continue to make those. Um, but also, you might find something that inspires you, which is my hope. So that's my quick plug. Wudao Music on YouTube. Uh, check that out and subscribe. Uh, always new things coming out. So if you're interested in Xiaoplane and music is the term is the is the form of art that inspires you, you may find something. But back to the conversation at hand, I personally look for art in everything. You know, I, I'm a very, uh, a very big consumer of science fiction, fantasy books, academic books uh, for Taoism, history, internal alchemy, uh, movies, all over the board. Uh, I, 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 I'm pretty involved with kind of always challenging myself. Um, there, there was a really funny interview that I had, uh, was it a year or two ago, where I did like a three-day interview with this Chinese news station uh, doing a documentary about Chinese culture things. And coming to here talking to me about martial arts, we did the whole day filming training and, and the different practices and blah, 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 and the music and study time and all this. And then they got to the question, they said, okay, we know who you are as like a coach. You know, we know who you are as a disciple and your practices you do. What, what do you do? What do you like to do as like a hobby? Like, what do you do in your personal downtime? And I was like, well, I study Taoism or I train or I play music. I'm like, no, 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 what do you do outside of that? And I said, there is no outside of that. Like, that is really how I approach everything. And it was a really funny moment for me to kind of try to explain that like, even if I'm watching some kind of science fiction movie or, or reading some fantasy book, uh, I guess you could consider that my downtime. But even then, I'm really interested in those world-building uh, stories 
that challenge your thought in some way, you know, and, and let you see different connections. And so I'm always, not that I'm forcing a connection back to Taoism or forcing a connection back to, you know, philosophy in some way, but that is how I perceive things. And so I'm very, very engaged in uh, whatever I'm consuming at the moment, uh, whether it be some kind of science fiction TV show that I'm currently watching, or even just an academic thing, you know, studying the anatomy of the human body, I'm I'm trying to engage in that in a process where I'm I'm seeing the picture that's been created, seeing the 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 liberties and the art and the the kind of manifestation of that, but I'm also trying to apply that like to myself and saying like. You know, I'm interested in this. Why is this so engaging for me? Like, what what is the challenge here? What is the what is the advice being given in this movie or in this book? Or what is the what is the origin of this idea? Or how did this come to be? Or wouldn't that be crazy? What if this? And and I I play through this reel <laughs> of of kind of uh, hypothesis and and question and theory. For quite a while, I I think that I'm I'm I have a pretty immersive kind of addictive personality, and I'm really challenged by this, and I enjoy that. Uh, so for me, there there isn't really downtime because my my life revolves around these practices already. But there are aspects of that connection that I think are really important for us to perceive, right? Art on any level, whether it's you know a physical practice, whether it's an, uh, a study of academics, whether it's an actual art uh, building process, something creative. I think that in any level of that, we we recognize that art. And so, what what I want to do is I want to explain kind of what I would say are the the six levels of art. Okay. Because I think that this is kind of how we engage with art on some level and how it may change over the years and and what that may mean. Again, I do want to specify that this doesn't mean that the level is progressive and that, you know, the goal is to reach the highest level. You know, it's just saying that these are the different ways that even a single piece in a single moment can be perceived, right? And so, without further ado... My first half, the first three levels are all about motivation, about inspiration. I think that the first level of art, we can take this as a simple practice, as you begin. Art is something that you do or you involve yourself in, engage in, in some way, interact with for yourself, essentially. The very first time you pick up an instrument, the first time you start writing a story, the first time you record something, you're creating that for yourself, right? That is your hobby. That is your interest. That is your challenge. Kind of you're, you're, you're opening the door to something of expression. Hopefully a creative expression, right? But you're, you're involving yourself. And that practice at its first kind of moment, there's an audience of one. And I think that's kind of a very pure form of art, you know, just for yourself. As you increase skill even, that art is going to become something that becomes available to professionals, what I would say. And so this audience, this, this kind of level 
is when you become more skilled and it becomes something that you share a commonality with other people. Maybe not professionals, it's a little maybe more amateur. You know, it becomes something that you're now connecting with a larger conversation, right? You pick up your instrument, you're playing. Now you realize that there's a lot of other people playing. And now you begin to share notes, become part of a community. You know, you become part of a gym, you become part of an online forum, you become part of a school. You know, this is where your learning becomes more in-depth. This is where your practice becomes to, it, it comes to incorporate those suggestions and role models of other people in the same field, right? So we go from an art practice that is for yourself to an art that is for others. You know, you, maybe you find a teacher at this level. Then, as your skill level increases a little more, your art becomes something that is for other people. You know, now you have an audience. Now you begin to do things, and that is inspiring other people to practice. That is inspiring other people to even never have picked up an instrument before, for example. You play a song, and other people want to play that song. And I think that that's a really kind of magical part of with music, for example, but with any art practice that when you reach a certain level, whether it's pottery or, or architecture or something, at a certain point when someone sees you manifesting that effortless action, when, when someone recognizes the, the kind of flow that you're in, that, that, that kind of skill and labor that you've put into creating this uh, piece of art, that begins to inspire other people to do it. You know, it's kind of like when people see Master Yuan do Taiji, they're like, I want to learn Taiji now. And because they think they can move like that. And of course, then there's that whole journey of the, the skill level that you've already built to get there that is underneath, that you don't see at first glance. And so it's kind of this inspiration, even though they might not have a connection to it. You know, you watch a, you watch a breakdancing video and then all of a sudden you want to start dancing, but you've never danced in your life. You know, and it's just kind of this thing that once someone reaches a certain level, there's this, this gravity that comes with that expression, right? That's when we're on the cusp of turning our art from inspiration into an example, into being a role model of some kind. And so I think that this is where... Uh, the professional level shifts. And so those layers start to mirror. You know, we have something, the art practice that goes from yourself to a professional amateur community. Uh, and then it becomes for the average everyday person to inspire them to do this art as well. Now we get into the becoming a role model of some kind. And I think this is where the system reflects itself and we go for back to the others. And the average person is now inspired to do the thing that they want to do. You know, they see you going out and accomplishing your goals. You know, they see the sport athlete, you know, kind of progressing in his field and, and, and just being in that flow, that growth, that montage video footage of, of everything working out. And that inspires you to go out and do the thing that you want to do. That goes, that inspires you to, 
you know, pick up painting, you know, you watch a, you watch a sport movie <laughs> about football, and then that inspires you to go out and start writing the book that you've been working on. So I think that that's where our, our, our level of skill has reached an, another tier, you know, and now we're inspiring people just to go out and create, right? And the next level of art, we return back to those professionals. But now you've become a leader. You've become an example. You've become a reference point. You know, you've become a, a classical art that is now something that becomes a standard, something that has inspired a genre, something that has brought life back into art in some way. You know, now you've not just become part of the conversation, now you've added a conversation. Right. You've created a new community in some ways. And then the final tier of art is when it returns back to yourself. To when the art is now something that is meant for an audience of one. And regardless of those who follow or those who acknowledge or are inspired by it in some way, the reason you practice returns back to its source and it is something that you do for your own benefit. And that is not to mean that it is something selfish. That is not to mean that it is something only to be kept inside and never shared. It is just to say that this is a reflection of yourself. This is a mirror. This is something that embodies an, uh, an aspect of yourself. And that becomes very personal. It becomes very intimate. It also has a certain sense of cultivation and time and patience and creation attached to it. And I think that this is the art that, while everything else inspires a conversation, inspires a following, this is the part of art that takes breath away. You know, this is the one that stops the conversation. You know, I've heard this um, uh, many times before, but you know, you don't want to be the you don't want to be the one that you know makes everyone start talking. You want to be the one that makes everyone stop talking. And that's a very easy oversimplification, but I think that kind of concept to apply that that idea of you know you're practicing for something potentially greater than yourself. You know, you're you're creating something that you aspire to be. You're you're setting a goal for yourself that may be unachievable. And that is kind of the embodiment of whatever practice, whatever medium you're using is this reach, this expression, this communication that transcends language. That becomes your art. You know, that becomes your truth and that is something that will outlive you that is something that will continue you know that echo will reflect through generations you know just the same way as when we hear a certain phrase from someone that sentence may may live on with us for a long time 
and continually define ourselves as we react to it time and time again. I think that at a certain point, that which we create also echoes through the generations. Personally, I also think that the, the type of creation that lives without a name is more valuable because it's that conversation that's been inspired or that connection that's happened, that interaction that's kind of dominoed down the lines and changed someone's life. I think that that is where art really lives. And it's why we connect and it's why we communicate and why we you know, engage with each other is we're always trying to discover this truth. And there are moments, you know, within a brushstroke, within a note of a song, within a page in a book, that we find those pieces. You know, we see the author, you know, we see the creator. And I think that that's where we kind of understand something. So I think that art can be found in anything and everything. You know, it only takes us to look for it. It is a language that reflects our deepest nature. And it doesn't need a Rosetta Stone to understand in most cases. Something that we can intuitively realize. Effortless action is the art of the body. Virtue is the art of the mind. And illumination of our true selves is the art of spirit. A phrase that I tend to live by to wrap this up is that everything does in fact happen for a reason. Sometimes we just have to create one. So with that, here's defining balance one cup at a time. Thank you for listening to this Tea Talk. Be sure to subscribe and join me every Tuesday for new episode releases available wherever you get your podcasts. You can also view the video version of this podcast on YouTube and support the ways of Wudang through Patreon. Keep the conversation going with hashtag Tea Talk Unfiltered or connect with me directly by joining the ways of Wudang on Discord. I'll talk with you next week for another cup of tea.